when it comes to the mainstream of 2019 and the mainstream of the future, I think when I say mainstream, I see this as something far more decentralized and, and fractured than, um, I don't know, mainstream looked like in the 1960s in America or, you know, where I grew up in Eastern Europe um, when I was a, a, a small child, there was only one TV channel, right? So, you know, mainstream actually meant like there's only one, it's almost like monostream. There was one TV channel, you know, uh, one of each. Um, so, but I do think when I say mainstream, I, I think about the effect. I think about um, an effect that goes beyond your subculture, that goes beyond your genre. And I think that's very important. I think in 2019, in some ways, we, we feel the presence of the mainstream in negative ways. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. Today, I interviewed Anna Gatt. Anna has a lot of interesting things to say, and we talked a lot about what it means to be an intellectual, and particularly a public intellectual, and what that means in 2019 in the age of social media. I find it interesting because I never expected to be doing a podcast. This is very, very far away from anything that I ever thought myself to be doing. And then in order to market the podcast, I've gone on Twitter uh, and I've started to be more public with my thoughts and the thoughts that my guests. Um, and so I've entered this realm of, I don't, I wouldn't say I'm a public intellectual yet, um, but I do think a lot and I like to talk about what I think about and I like to do that online now. Um, so it's very weird and it was very uh, beautiful to talk with Anna about what it means to be a public intellectual and what it means to put your thoughts out there and what it means to influence uh, society in whatever way that you do, whether that's at the more of a niche way or more of a mainstream way. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Anna. Uh, as always, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, any of the major podcasting platforms, uh, and go ahead and subscribe on any of those platforms. I am creating quite a bit of content and from what people tell me, it's pretty good. So I think you'll enjoy it and I think you'll like it. And if you do find it enjoyable, please leave us a review on iTunes or whichever other podcast platform you find yourself on. Uh, and I am on Twitter at Stuart Alsop III. My DMs are open. I'd love to hear what you think about this episode or any other episode. Hope you guys have a great day and enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Crazy Wisdom Podcast. My guest today is Anna Gat. She is the founder and editor of the Interintellect and the founder uh, of Pynchon, a talent agency for public intellectuals. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. What are you most excited about today? Wow, that's a good question. I just had a wonderful um, kind of conspiratory um, call with a friend of mine who is interested in joining me in the kind of the content building part of Pynchon. And so I'm pretty psyched about that. I really like strategizing and figuring out uh, big plans and then deliver on them. And what is the plan for Pynchon? Pynchon is um, a platform that spots, trains, and provides talent representation for the public intellectuals of the future. Um, basically, um, a, a, a 
pool of resources, jobs, help, and, and talent management um, for the myriad of incredibly talented and productive um, intellectual workers of the internet. Um, I, I, want, I want to help people who have the ambition and the intelligence to, be, to become public educators, to be able to do it. And I think without, um, without the support uh, provided by platforms like Pynchon, it would be just very, very slow and difficult. So we kind of take some of the burden off of the people who should be rather concentrating on their work. And what is the difference between an intellectual and a public intellectual? Well, public intellectual, I think that's a brilliant question. I think public intellectual is a little bit of an oxymoron in the sense that the, the adjective and the noun are a little bit paradoxical. Um, it's a spectrum, right? So you go from the most public to the most intellectual, the most extroverted to the most um, introverted. I think uh, public intellectual is from 50% and up toward the public. Um, obviously, for, for intellectuals who are um, just looking to better themselves in writing or public speaking, uh, Pynchon is not the right platform. There are wonderful places to, you know, become a better writer on or where to learn how to speak. We help people gain um, the place in society that they should have as public educators, um, which comes with um, the ability, the platform and the support to address the general audience. Interesting. And this is the thing about what I've discovered recently is that um, most people who are doing the important work are working out on the edges of society and society doesn't really reward it uh, in any sort of meaningful way until they bring something back from that edge that's meaningful to their lives. Um, and so there's this kind of like exploration and play that needs to happen on the part of the intellectual who's doing the work and then brings it back and that doesn't really it's you can't fit it into a box and say this is what i'm doing and this is what you're going to get um and here are all the reasons you want to do it and this i'm going to provide you with success because this is what i found you can't do that with with this kind of work and um and so it goes unrewarded for a very long time oftentimes even after the person dies um and so what you guys are trying to do is provide for identify the talent and then provide the resources for those people, basically. Yes, I think that's a really good um, summary. There are multiple things to, to consider here, right? Uh, one is that, um, as I pointed out um, before, not everybody wants to... Where to start? So it's quite common to view um, kind of our cultural machinery as something where extremely exciting things are constantly being produced on the fringes and then some of those things will be elevated uh, up to kind of mainstream level uh, and, and, and introduced to the wider public. We see this in terms of musical genres, but it's also something that will ha happen in linguistics, for example. A lot of words that we use in English come from dialects, um, from languages that were spoken in small communities and somehow they found their way into kind of the received vocabulary or the, or the commonplace vocabulary of, of the English language. So one of the things that um, I find very, very interesting is that even though the internet seems to have really figured out the production and the circulation of uh, ideas at scale, 
we haven't figured out how to what is the mainstream and how does the mainstream work where subcultural celebrities great fringe creators who have proved themselves in those communities how can they and should they be elevated into mainstream we kind of sense that the mainstream has a disproportionate amount of um, of bearing on how things turn out of how what the public opinion is what the public atmosphere the vibe the emotion is um, and that you know when it comes to um, um, having an effect on on policy making on uh, journalistic trends in most cases it's you know, people with a very uh, wide-reaching voice that will have that effect. What we don't know is that, okay, so if we have this marvelous era where all these fringes are able to reach quite large audiences within their own subculture, how do they, why, why have I never heard about them? And is that good? Is that good that we all have our, you know, little bubbles and the little bubbles have their own pantheons um, or should there be a public public square where the best are admitted um and so, so you know one may get this weird feeling where um you know you switch on the tv or you open a, a kind of a, a mainstream website or a newspaper and you will see the same public intellectuals who were there 20 25 years ago before the internet's um real intellectual um, um revolution ha has taken place so what Pynchon kind of undertook to do is to try to repair that pipeline, to think that if, if suddenly you notice that all the children run super fast, I don't know, something happened in the atmosphere or in nutrition and all the kids are sprinting like cheetahs, but then you started watching the Olympic Games and you notice that the runners run kind of the same in the, in the same speed um, as they used to before, then you would immediately know that it's a pipeline for them. Somehow the coaches who train the Olympic runners have never met their fast running kids. And the fast running kids probably don't know that they can aspire to become Olympic runners. So the, my you know, answer to that would be to like make them meet. Um, then there are other aspects. And I think it's very important to, to note that not every subcultural intellectual influencer on the internet wants to enter the mainstream and that's very important to respect the internet is not for everybody my work is not for everybody uh, it's very important to um to understand that about yourself i work for the people who and i build my platforms which is kind of an answer to this on a scalable level um who are frustrated that they can't enter the olympic race who want to be there um so, so so to me that that's quite important to note and the other thing that you mentioned and and then i kind of <laughs> stop my uh my powerpoint about um pension obviously i can talk about this for years um is that um the internet has also produced uh, uh, new genres that are not even genres like a, a new category beyond the genre but is you know, you, you're not going to, when something is completely unique, you're not going to call it a genre, right? The internet has made the, the delta between two specific works so great, even within seemingly similar genres, that a lot of legacy, uh, ways to represent talent no longer makes any sense for these people, right? Um, 
I'm not going to throw around names, uh, but you know, just think about your favorite um, Silicon Valley-based or California-based blogs, and then try to like put a label on them, um, and then you suddenly understand that you have no idea. Like the, their their glory is that they are unclassified, and and you don't want to pin them down. But but on the other hand, like we know that everybody reads these blogs. Um, like I just did um, a panel um, for the Interintellect in London um, about um, about community and free speech and and optimism, and one of the speakers on the panel who is a very um, influential person in in the London startup scene mentioned one of these famous Californian blogs. So yes, they do affect how things turn out in the sense that they build into the thinking of those who then go and make changes in the world. But I want my intellectuals to be able to do this directly. You don't want to be, there's a reason why you're not um, necessarily a creator of fiction, right? You have this meta layer in fiction that you watch a film, it gives you a feeling, and then you acting on that feeling, you might uh, change something in the world. I think a lot of public intellectuals want to have a more direct way to address people. And, and I think that's, to me, that's public service. I, I see public educators as very, very important, almost as important in, um, in a free society as the free press. Mm -hmm. They are in front of you and they compete alongside ideas in a transparent way so that you can make, um, informed choices as a citizen. <laughs> Um, and, but that's kind of a, a, a in 2019, it's, um, it's not the most looked after uh, arena in our culture, in our society, and I'm working on making it so again. So I have a few questions from that, um, and I want to put a pin into all of them. Uh, the first okay. one is... Uh, uh, Mainstream. I want to get a definition of what mainstream is, particularly after the uh, rise in the internet and the fall of broadcast mediums, the relative fall of broadcast mediums. For example, you know, TV shows that would have had like 40 million viewers in the United States now only have one to two million viewers. Uh, cable news fractured it beforehand and all. And so it's a, like a decentralization of the, I want to understand what mainstream actually means now after that. And then the other thing is that uh, the, about a year ago, I've had a long, I've had a interest in teaching for a long time. Um, I actually went the route of yoga and then went through various changes about what yoga means and it's not what is practiced in the studio. So I, um, so I then took yoga out of its modern context and now I, I can view it as similar to what you're talking about of, of essentially sharing um, wisdom with the goal of spiritual liberation. Um, and that can happen anywhere, anytime. It doesn't need to happen in a yoga studio. It can happen on the internet. And so I started to make this switch for myself about why I'm using the internet and I don't need anyone. I don't need a group. I don't need to go in person to teach anyone. I can just teach online. There's no, there's no. And so I just started doing it and not really teaching. It's more sharing what I'm learning and then, and then, um, you know, taking the books that I'm reading and then formulating what I'm learning and base it on my experiences. And then share that uh, through through these mediums and everything like that. And so you don't really need, you know, it was necessary 100 years ago if you wanted to teach to go into a room and teach people in it, in, in, you know, with this model of like 
teacher knows things, students sit, look at the teacher, um, and get those things. Um, and that's the model for a lot of education still. Um, and I really, I'm really enjoying the, the bi-directional nature of the internet. People who are following me end up becoming really, really important insights into what I'm talking about because they're attracted to it. So then they, then they start to kind of feed me information, feed me wisdom and stuff like that. So it's really interesting. So those two things about what is a mainstream and the role, I guess, of universities, because now I view social media as a university for myself, basically. Hmm. I have, I think, two answers um, to this. Uh, one would be about the pipeline. Um, so from the source up to um, the, the destination of arrival. Um, I always thought that the the pipeline that kind of feeds the uh, the public intelligentsia, so to speak, um, has you know three three sources. One would be um, academia. Uh, one would be um, traditional publishing, um, and the third would be established mediums. Of course, that you know that sounds great and it's very easy to visualize. But then you kind of zoom in and you arrive to the second point that I, I, I that's probably more inter more interesting and more um, constructive to explore. When we, when we say academia, when we say established publishing, and when we say um, established media or traditional publishing and established media, we are really talking about the gatekeepers, right? The reason why you respect Harvard or any Ivy League university or in the UK or Oxford or Cambridge or Imperial College is because you assume that their selection methods are so advanced that they really take the best people. Um, and so whatever really you do at Harvard, you will, um, you know, they, you're one of the smartest people um, in, in, in your giant country. Um, when it comes to traditional publishing, well, if you have been published by a good publishing house, people can, you know, kind of relax their defenses and, and, and I think that your um, Stuart has been vetted and edited and mm. trained and, and, and he's fine. Um, when it comes to um, established media, that's a little bit trickier, right? Because they will basically in order to become interesting uh, to the to the media, you have to have proven in other places that you are worthy of it, um, and so it's maybe it's a bit of a, a meta layer there. But I'm interested in the gatekeeper um, question because when it comes to the mainstream of 2019 and the mainstream of the future, I think when I say mainstream, I see this as something far more decentralized and, and fractured than, um, how, I don't know, mainstream looked like in the 1960s in America or, you know, where I grew up in Eastern Europe um, when I was a, a, a small child, there was only one TV channel, right? So, you know, mainstream actually meant like there's only one, it's almost like monostream. Mm -hmm. There was one TV channel, you know, uh, one of each. Um, so, but I do think, when I say mainstream, I, I think about the effect. I think about um, an effect that goes beyond your subculture, that goes beyond your genre. And I think that's very important. I think in 2019, in some ways, we, we feel the presence of the mainstream in negative ways. 
you hear about the, the misdeeds, the crimes of people that are outside your, um, your um, bubble, in a sense, um, I want that to be not necessarily negative. I don't think people should embezzle money or commit crimes in order to be able to aspire to greatness um, above their subcultures. But then who, who, who are the, what, what, what kind of, what kind of uh, forces in our culture have the strength to ele elevate anybody in a positive way above subcultures? And then you kind of go back to the gatekeepers and then you suddenly find yourself in a world which to me is a happy world, um, with um, independent gatekeepers. A lot of people, you know, a lot of um, op opinion makers who are able to lift operators, creators um, above subcultural silos are not necessarily affiliated with traditional. A lot of them are, but some are not even in, in academia or not even working for established media or not um, having been published by, uh, by um, you know, um, uh, uh, traditional uh, publishing houses. So to me, that, that becomes very, very interesting. And a lot of these people, and this is kind of probably a generational thing, um, have had in the past um, help or support from the the, the machinery that in the past used to create public intellectuals um, and they are in some ways the, the um, um, you know it's their legacy or it's in the past of their careers um, I think our generation no longer has this luxury um, and that's why um, companies like Pynchon are, are needed and when it comes to so I think one of the reasons why I can be very um, I can make very counterintuitive choices with Finchon and basically pivoted the company through different iterations into um, its current form. Um, it's because I've been running the Interintellect, uh, which is a community. It's about discussions and salons and writing pieces about whatever is on our minds. Um, and this organization now exists in San Francisco, in, um, in New York, Toronto, London, and Oxford. Mm, and there are um, plans to kind of start meetups in other places as well. Uh, so I kind of noticed this new extreme positivity and ambition in terms of intellectual output in my generation after, I don't know, two or two and a half years of, you know, being closed into a cocoon, um, horrified of the public arena and not knowing what words we can use and where and this is safe to be on Twitter. Um, I, Tyler Cohen called I'm the Interintellect, a post-political movement. And I really like that expression. I, I, I think there are a lot of people with strong political opinions and ambitions um, in the Interintellect on all sides. So it's very, very uh, pluralistic in terms of ideology. Um, but it's post-political in the sense that I don't think anybody feels in any way that they would fit into um, fit into anything. So, so I think the multidisciplinarity and the ideological pluralism of the interintellect and the optimism um, gave us the self-confidence to say, like, okay, there has to be a company as well. 
for those who are serious about this. Um, and we can do this in a, in a very ethical and very constructive way. Mm-hmm. So this mainstream exists, and I really like the point you made about how to enter the mainstream, one has to basically connect with something really deep within the collective understanding of what's going on. And and there's got to be like, you can hang out in these subcultures and really get a lot of interesting work done. But in order to make it translatable to the mainstream, you need to essentially hook on to a archetype, a deep archetype that's been around for thousands of years, or maybe Mm -hmm. a image um, and, and hook into that and have something new and interesting to say about that thing um, that connects with a large amount of people. Wow. That's a, you know, that's a very Nietzschean idea that the, the poet descends, uh, the Apollonian poet descends into the, um, the swirling collective uh, subconscious of uh, its people and, and kind of rises in a dialectical way from there to, um, to, to kind of mix the, the instincts and the intellect. Um, I don't, I think the people who are ready to be public educators have gone through a lot themselves. I, you, you hear a lot of stories of personal hardship and dark nights of the soul. And obviously people resonate very deeply to wisdom. So you do want to hear, um, you, you don't want to listen to people who are a little bit smarter and wiser than you. Obviously, like why, why would we waste our time, right? Um, so there's that and, 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 and obviously that's important. But on the other hand, I don't know. I don't think you do this consciously. I have this weird, I have a couple of weird theories about, um, <laughs> about um, uh, archetypes that I always kind of like entertain my friends with. One is that, oh, you know, in 2019, uh, in the 21st century, a lot of, there are a lot of new jobs. And sometimes you don't know what this other person is because it's impossible to classify them in like a kind of classical um guild system like what do they do and i always say like okay so let's imagine this person what would their job be in victorian times in like 1855 like you adjust for like you know universal suffrage and all that and then you think okay so there's like mark zuckerberg and you know maybe mark zuckerberg's real job is confusing to you but then you imagine that he exists in like 1855 and then you know oh he's the newspaper man and then you immediately know, like, okay, so Mark Zuckerberg is in the media business. Or you think, what is Elon Musk? And then you know, like, oh, he's like this gentleman inventor who also like sells toys and makes a lot of money. And then you know that like, you can know who he is, kind of like archetypically. So that's kind of one of my games that I like to play. Um, and the other one, and maybe that's closer to um, to um, to the archetype thing. Um, I think it was. Austin Allred, who quoted this uh, famous um, business adage like, uh, show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. Um, and I think um, it, it's quite, like I think that people have driving incentives in their professional lives or in their intellectual lives um, that can be approached um, in kind of from 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 um, from an archetypical point of view. Like for example, for myself, I think my personal archetype, if I have to like really narrow it down, would be something like a traveling priest. 
like I just like I like to be independent and then I go to people and then I say something very troubling and then I leave like good luck um <laughs> but like when it comes to business or when it comes to my communal work um you could more classify my persona as political not political in the partisan sense not political in the sense that I want to work in, in public policy but in the sense that I organize people uh I, I work toward the public it's very value-based um, and very much about enabling other people to be able to actively pass on those values or, or live them or creating a platform for them. Other intellectuals, are, or rather founders in some sense, um, are a researcher archetype, right? They don't really care about organizing people, they care about finding a solution. Um, and they are super happy that they have business development colleagues who will kind of do the more extroverted part of their work. Um, then there are, there are founders who are farmers. We keep laughing at that with a couple of people who, you know, who, um, in the kind of the near AR sense do the, the, the reward of the hunt type of products. Like they grow talent or they grow, um, runners, right? Or they grow sleepers. Like you have, you have kind of those products. So in some sense, yeah, in, in business, definitely, I have noticed that thinking in archetypes can be helpful, provided that you understand that people are very complicated beings and that we change from period to period in our lives, and they are, we are most of us are combinations of things. So you mentioned this founder archetype, and I'm really interested. I go into this a lot on the show as if we go back into the early history of blogging, it was mostly VCs and Silicon Valley people creating blogs that were valuable for comp people building companies. Uh, and, and then there are multiple iterations of this. And towards the end, I think it was 2007 when I first started using it myself, um, uh, Naval Ravikant and Nivi created a blog about the real information about how to raise money. Um, and, so it's really interesting. And so these were the first people using this blogging and this kind of, I mean, there was a whole bunch of other people using it for music and other things like that as well. But it was all people who had a great familiarity with technology. And then there's this other aspect of it that I personally have come into contact with is that I read a lot of spiritual stuff, yoga kind of things. And um, most of the people who talk a lot about that on the internet, particularly in Quora and other things are programmers usually. So if you were to only get your kind of spiritual guidance from the internet, you're most likely getting it from a programmer who's done a lot of investigation into this stuff. So there's this, and, and so then what I want to ask is basically as this, as technology takes over more and more and more of our personal lives um, and professional lives, how does this translate to people who don't, aren't involved with technology, but want to use it in order to become a public intellectual? So just so that I, I understand the question uh, perfectly well. Um, so is this about the overlaps between the community of technologists and the community of public intellectuals or? Yeah, and the difference between people whose professions have been involved with technology for a long time and who are in it versus mm -hmm. those people who are out of out of it but recognize that it's important to use so an example would be maybe somebody like on east coast who has been watching technology for a long time is maybe a politician or a pundit or something like that 
and then now builds their Twitter following um, so that they can they can use it in order to get their message out. Yeah, I think it's important to to differentiate um, between two ways to use the, the the word technology. So one would be as you used it um, with regard to Twitter, um, which is the technological product that um, facilitates uh, intellectual content production and and give access to um, to this. Um, in that sense, technology's role is absolutely crucial. Um, I don't think. I mean, to to, to to you know to to um I don't even know to, to to always emphasize technology as a separate thing in everything we use today. It sounds sometimes to me like if you talked about a house and you would have to specify that it has running water. It's mostly that it doesn't. That's the rare thing, and then you have to point it out. So so in that sense, technology is a layer on 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 the non-technological aspects of our lives, if that even exists. Um, on the other hand, you can use technology to denote a sector, a community of people, right? Um, VCs, founders, operators, hopefuls, students. Um, in that sense, I don't see... I don't see that necessarily um, an inherent relationship between technology practitioners and public intellectuals. I think if you live in the Bay Area or if you are a programmer yourself, you will kind of have this um, observational um, effect that um, you will feel that most of the, the public in, in public uh, in, or most of the intellectuals are somehow related to technology. I don't think that's true. Um, if you're, you know, if you're a philosophy student uh, on uh, Sorbonne, you will think that the whole world is full of uh, French Marxist philosophers who smoke a lot of cigarettes. And if you're a physicist in Kiev, then you will think that the whole world is just chess playing plasma physicists. And how curious! And you will feel like an average dude or girl. Um, so we do have these little things. The beauty of the internet is that it's through creation of blogs and through creation of online communities. If you want, if you live in, on Hawaii and you're a tattoo artist living on Hawaii who is 75 years old and somehow you become interested in plasma physicists, chess players in Kiev and they have a blog or a video channel, you can learn about them. You can even make friends with them. So YouTube and Twitter, in that sense, or whatever blog WordPress that they use, will facilitate this thing and, and, and will create, will kind of rearrange the, the, the ge ge geographical structure of the, of the communities. On the other hand, and this is my caveat to this, and this is why I'm so happy to be, you know, the technology in my life is present in both senses of the word, that technologists, because it's a very highly, you know, it's a very intellectual field. You have to de demonstrate, um, just like whether you're a programming or a VC or a founder, you have to demonstrate, you know, exceptional mental abilities and a kind of stamina and versatility that is very um, useful for all these uh, this creative stuff as well. I think technologists, Maybe because we sense our immense disproportionate responsibility on how things will turn out for everybody. Um, I think 
for us, creating things publicly and speaking in very intellectual, um, in a very, very intellectualizing style and, and kind of consider um, these uh, forms of output public service, I think that comes very naturally for technologists. So I would say that um, probably most technologists, um, most technologists intellectuals are public intellectuals but not all public intellectuals are technologists mm. very interesting so in their in their community the density is high but in the overall community of public intellectuals it's one of the the, the branches and we i really like the point of what we we see what we are as well and we 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 find those subgroups that most genuinely express that which we are as well and connect yeah with. or what we hate you know i mean scott alexander has this amazing uh um very tentative blog post about seeing discrimination and how he doesn't but somebody goes through the same exact experiences and will feel discriminated against i don't know i will give you an example um when you're in love and you are in a new couple Maybe you go to places and you notice couples and you're like, oh my God, it looks like all of San Francisco, all of London is in love. And wherever I see it, it's people holding hands and making out. But if you've just broken up with somebody and you have a heartache, you will see the same things. You were like, why is everybody making out in front of me? Don't you know that my heart has just been broken? So I think it's, it's similar. Uh, maybe a lot of um, some of the technologists on their worst day who want to be polycontextuals will be, I don't know. Um, you know, some of them will express opinions that why is um, the public intelligentsia so saturated with all these humanities people who don't understand how AI works, just kind of quoting an unnamed person. Um, but at the same time, on normal days, like yourself, you will be like, wow, I'm so happy to be in this industry because everybody it seems to be like all the public intellectuals are like me and I can also do it. Um, I hope that it's also the perception across different sectors, because if you feel that the certain uh, critical mass has been passed, then you will aspire to become that thing yourself more easily. Mm. Um, so, so this is great news in any case. Mm. I find it really interesting how the internet is creating a global culture um, but then also many global subcultures and that there's this imaginary place that we visualize that's made up of tubes, you know, running through the internet as a oversimplification. Um, and then we've got a real life, but more and more this physical real life and the internet are then there's this feedback loop. For example, I'll give an example from my personal life. I'm, I've been going back and forth from San Francisco, moving to another country, setting up my life there for six to eight months um, and, you know, just figuring it all out. And as I've been doing this over the past 15 years, the, the internet has been evolving more and more and more. Um, and so when I first started out uh, back in China, there was no Google maps. There was no, there was no uh, Facebook. There was no, uh, there was no anything that could help me understand what am I doing in that country? And I was lost for a long time. It was great. I loved it. Uh, <laughs> um, and it, it was, it was, really, really difficult. And, uh, and then with both, I get better as I go, as I do more and more of it. And then around 2008, 2009, um, that's when Facebook started coming around and really helped me, um, meet new 
people uh, and then maintain those relationships previously before that I would have lost most of the relationships because it was all dependent on email and, and it just didn't, didn't work. There was no video calling. Um, and then we'll fast forward to the last two years, which is that I went to Guadalajara. I had this idea that I wanted to do a, um, uh, a, a workshop in for yoga teachers in Latin, in, in Latin America, anywhere else that spoke, Spanish as their primary language and I wanted to teach them how to teach yoga in English so that they could uh, attract more customers and uh, That's amazing. Good for you. That sounds like a very worthwhile way to spend your time And it was quite fun and and, and I really enjoyed it and, and it made me better and, and so I was able to do the workshop actually both yeah. in, in Guadalajara and in Montpellier France and wow um, uh, and both of those times I tried to leverage the internet and the, the best way that I found was to go on Instagram and find all the people which hashtags of yoga and Espanol or uh, something like that. And, um, and the same thing in France. And then I actually hired a company called invisible to get all the emails from all the yoga studios in France and, um, and then, uh, email them the, the, the pitch. Uh, and then the one that responded was in Montpellier, France. And so then I went to Montpellier, France. Um, and it's a wonderful town. I love it. It was very cool. Yeah. And so, but it was hard still. It was hard about two years ago. Yeah. Um, and I still hadn't figured out what, it, what the, the process mm. for communicating with people and across cultural, um, across from cultures and stuff like that. Yeah. And so then um, this time I'm doing it again and I'm going to go to Medellin. And even like I came up with an idea of where I want to go a week and a half ago and I've already set it up. Like I've, <laughs> it's already, it's already there. And so this, it's getting and that will affect my real life when I actually go there. And, and so there's this, this inter interplay between real life and mm. virtual life that's getting harder to distinguish. Mm. Uh, first of all, it's wonderful to hear about your adventures and I always much enjoy it. Um, and I hope you will, you know, create a video series and a blog and, 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 and allow people to, to learn and be inspired. Um, I have noticed as well, and I think it kind of correlates with um, the newfound optimism that we discussed earlier. Um, one of the reasons why Twitter IRL, quote unquote, is becoming a thing, why people are setting up salons and kind of fly over to meet each other um, across um, oceans and continents, is because we are learning to trust each other again. Mm. And to me, the implications of that are unthinkably positive. Um, I think, you know, um, loudmouths always say, oh, you know, it's, um, it's like there's a wavy thing in how things go in politics and public um, uh, vibes and, you know, extroverted periods, introverted periods, distrustful, trustful periods, but they never, they are never happy to acknowledge when a positive phase is coming. I think a positive phase is coming. That's why I wrote um, the We Are Niche, we just didn't know article for the II. People are like, after a storm, kind of sticking their noses out of houses and you see windows opening and people are getting out of them. Um, but just getting to get back to the origins of, 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 of this whole um, question or how, how I see it. There are two things, right? One is that just like uh, Facebook didn't expect the um, positive political effects like organizing the Arab Spring or Occupy Wall Street on, on Facebook, it, uh, it also probably didn't uh, anticipate its negative effects um, of like ad buying and fake news um, that then proliferates on its website. The same way I think Facebook didn't fully anticipate what kind of effect it will have on my generation's sense of internationality. And like, 
I am definitely a generation that um, was partly educated abroad, and there were a lot of foreign friends and language learning, and kind of the self-image of the parents greatly depended on how many seemingly enviable experiences they push their kids through. Um, but those relationships are mostly lost. Like we would share a couple of letters and then exchange a couple of letters and then, you know, whatever, like 1997, like who cares? Um, and then on Facebook, I was able to find these people. Um, and from that moment on, you know, uh, I also went to Montpellier. I went to Montpellier uh, in 2008, 2007. I went to Montpellier. I was participating in a course um, to strengthen like um, the kind of my language uh, skills in uh, around public policy and public discussions is very interesting um, because I only had like high school. Like, I went to high school in France, so I didn't really have an adult French. Um, and when I was setting that trip up, Facebook was already there, and I had already by that time rediscovered my French friends from like the late nineties. So by the time I actually went to Montpellier, I was added to groups and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so that effect, I think, was greatly intensified by Meetup. I think Meetup.com had, I mean, really, I think today, if somebody sent you to Estonia tomorrow, um, which is a Saturday, by Monday, you would be okay. Like on Sunday, you would find a Meetup on, a, on an English-speaking website. You would go there, meet three people. They would explain to you how to get a social security number and a bank account. And by the end of next week, you will would have rented out an apartment and figured out how to get a visa. And then that's it. Like that's unprecedented and incredible. Mm. Um, the other thing I wanted to add, and I think that's very, as a technologist and as somebody who builds products, it's all, all, always very important to me not to take myself as the model user. Like, of course, in a lot of sense, we are building products for ourselves. And I don't think you can actually work on a product that you wouldn't use yourself or that you don't need. So, you know, when I say I'm building the next generation of public intellectuals, it's because I need them. I am one of those people who are the target audience. And that's very, very important. On the other hand, in the, like, users only have similar habits when you really interview them at scale. If you interview 100 users, they will tell you 100 different stories and they will be very, very proud of how unique their life is because we're humans and yeah we like to do things a little bit differently everybody is you know very it's part of our identity that we differ from other people um so i think my experiences on the internet compared with somebody who has a very specific hobby um, will be very different and i will give you an example i very like my my habits on the internet are relatively mainstream i am in kind of two and a half sectors from which I have contacts. Um, I have a Medium blog. I'm now just starting a Substack. I have a Twitter account and I have an Instagram and a Facebook that I don't really use. Um, and kind of I do talk about things that most people can understand, et cetera, et cetera. I don't have an alt um, or alt plural. One of my oldest friends in the world, uh, called Juliana in, in, in Budapest, she's, um, she's an onco-psychologist. So she has a very hard job. Um, she, um, she worked, I don't know, for the past 10 years at the um, official center of oncology in Budapest, uh, which is just as bad as it sounds, uh, from like <laughs> 6 a.m. every day for, I don't know, $200 a month because she's a, you know, um, 
of public sector employee in an East European country, um, mm. working with cancer patients, uh, doctors, nurses, and relatives. Mm. So kind of the whole nine yards. And one of the ways she was coping with this very difficult work that she chose for herself because she's an incredible human being um, is that she, she's doing a lot of um, kind of DIY arts and crafts things at home, things I, I, ne I never do. Like all of my friends have like gardening and other hobbies and I like my, my, my goal in life is not to burn down the kitchen. Like I'm very, <laughs> like, and read books. That's all I do. And one of the things that she, she learned because she educated herself was this thing called macrame. I don't know, when you kind of create these incredibly elaborate pieces of clothing through knots. So you basically take a bunch of yarn and you sit for 200 days and then you have a top with like fringes and it's only the knots. And I, you know, I look at the macrame and I kind of like somewhere from like, the deep memory if something pops up that I had already seen something like this. But I, I, I don't really run around my life conscious that macrame exists. Like, great. Um, but apparently, as she, was, as she was learning this, she discovered that there's a huge community online and all these people, they just sit and they do macrame. And then you can Skype with them and they're like, <laughs> you have like a Nobel Prize winning economist and like, I don't know, a mother of like 12 children in Colorado who like only eats ants. And like you have all like the whole spectrum of like humanity. 0.001% of that giant global community is insane about macrames. And they have like Instagram and Etsy and Pinterest and it's like alive. And so her experience of the internet is that she was living, she was working like 10 hours a day in an environment that you can't really share with anybody, you can't really talk about it. Um, she has her family, and then this whole world opened up through the nichest ever thing that you could come up with. Mm. And I'm pretty sure macrame is relatively mainstream compared to whatever other things are on the internet and then on the deep web, right? Like you have things that like only two people in the world want, and then they can like meet. Um, so to me, that, that is some, I, I don't think that's scalable. That's not something that I do. It's definitely not something that pinching, which is all about, um, you know, bringing the spotlight on things that will, um, kind of serve the betterment of mankind, but to acknowledge that there are these wonderful invisible communities, um, and the, the, the comfort and the community they can bring to humans. I think that's. You know, when, when somebody tells you like, oh, the internet is like killing society and mental health and I, really? Like, I mean, you have to be, okay, yeah, they are very addictive products, but if you can't find beauty on the internet, you probably won't find it anywhere. Mm. And it's probably you. That's really <laughs> good. Uh, so, and this reminds me of something that, that, that is very related tangentially to what you're talking about. Uh, so I have my own, I go through a lot of different subcultures that I, that I'm interested in, depending on what I'm learning right now, it's uh, dance and it's partner dance. Um, and it's, uh, there's one. Oh, wow. What, what kind of dance is like Latin? Uh, so dances? I mean, all of it. Uh, so yeah, primary Latin, but then there's also something in, there's a, there's a, I would say, what is the word? Um, flourishing or of dance innovation inside of San Francisco right now. 
Um, and so there's salsa, which is you can find everywhere in the world. And that's pretty, it's the same as, as in everywhere in the world. And then there's Zouk, a Brazilian dance. Oh yeah, um, I know that. You know that? Okay. That's very, like, that makes you very, very strong. And elastic and really trains your fascia, which is really interesting. And the guy who teaches it here, he's a chiropractor. So he actually teaches it from this, uh, from this understanding of the holistic sense of the body. Wow. Um, it's very cool. But then there's this other thing called fusion. Uh, and fusion is partner dance with no structure. Uh, so I don't, you might already know this, but no, 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 essentially no structure. And then there's also ecstatic dance, which is uh, just dancing, but with no structure, no, no guided, uh, and no expectations of what you should be doing. You can just stand in the middle of the room and nobody's going to um uh make it, say anything uh but the i love the, san francisco san francisco is i mean there are problems with that city but these things just make me i don't know oh see see carton hot bubbles <laughs> it, it, it related to our conversation it's the the border between in real life and internet is uh, uh, smallest here um so so there's the the it's the smallest gap between internet and real life and it's been that way it's about five years ahead of everywhere else i, I would say um but then so i went to the zoo class a couple of weeks ago and i and um it was funny I, another guest gave me this shirt that says uh talk to strange or don't talk to strangers and then crosses out don't um and so it says talk to strangers basically and so somebody commented on my shirt and and uh and we started talking and and he i had actually met him Speaking of Facebook, I'd met him in Thailand in 2014 at a meetup for drop shippers. And then we met again in a Zoop class. Uh, and in San Francisco uh, into the 19th. Like five, five years yeah. later. And then he, um, and then we, we went and got coffee the next day. Um, and uh, because he had been, just been living in Medellin and I was, I had just made the decision to go to Medellin and he, um, he had, he was now moving to San Francisco because he was starting a company here. Um, and we were talking about the, how, cause I'm interested in exploring the rise of innovation, business innovation outside of, um, Silicon Valley. And primarily I'm going to start doing that in Spanish in Mexico or in Brazil. And, uh, but I'm going to Colombia, which has the startup scene, but then I'm not even going to the main city of that. I'm going to Medellin. Um, and it, but there is an interesting thing going on there with digital nomads. Um, so digital nomads are all choosing Medellin or Chiang Mai and Bali. I would say those are the three main places that they're at. And so then um, Medellin has this flourishing thing and we were talking about it and he's like, yeah, I don't think you're going to find good interview guests there um, because they're all focusing on these very niche things and they're, you know, kind of freelancers. There's nothing really interesting or innovative. And he says, there's probably only going to be 0.51% of that. Um, and to me, I was thinking, oh, that's fine. I, that's not really a big deal because I'm looking at them as individuals for interviews. Um, and those are the type of people I want to talk to. And it doesn't matter whether there's only a small amount, like it's, it's, it's I, usually people are interested in talking. So it's like, um, so that's actually a, a boon for me. I, I'm really excited. Mm. And, and, and this is something I want to investigate. Maybe you have an in, in, insight into this is, so there's this rise of innovation happening outside of Silicon Valley in ma major urban areas. And then there's also this digital nomad, a kind of distributed work thing that is removing geography from as the main limiting factor for where you do your business. And so there's these two streams and I'm, there's something happening and I haven't even been able to explain it in words yet of there's not much difference between those two things. So if, if, if you're in Medellin, Colombia and you're from Medellin and you're also connected and you've been to San Francisco and you're starting this company that's focused on Latin America. And then right next door, you've got this guy who's drop shipping from a co-working space in Medellin. 
and they're not connected. They're not, they're not probably not talking. Um, there, there's the local and then there's the digital nomad and they don't really intersect mm -hmm. that much, mostly because of languages, but then also other weird stuff. And so there's this like weird division that happens and it's based on something we've been talking about, which is this interest. You find people who are yeah. interested in stuff like that. That's basically my rant. I don't know if you have anything to say about No, that. I think that's really, really interesting. And definitely um, finding peers based on interest um, used to be the battle cry on the internet for the past 20 years. I have a little bit of a different take on this and the business personal and this really has less to do with pension and more uh, to do with how I conduct my personal relationships and how my what my ideals are around the inter-intellect, so the II, um, which is relatively democratic community, so it's just like, that's my take. One of the things that always bothered me when I was a kid um, was I never understood why, why would I need to feel anything communal about people who were just randomly dropped next to me whether that was just the kid of my mom's friends and then they go and play. And I'm like, why would I play with this kid? I, I don't want to. Um, or, you know, somebody who just happened to be in my class. Like, uh, I don't know about where you went to school, but in Hungary, you have like one class in one classroom and then you're with them for years, always in the same desk mm -hmm. and then different teachers come in. So you are dropped in a community of 30 people who just either happen to have been born in a similar you know calendar unit than you or live in a similar area of the city or go have the same family income and i was like why would i need like i didn't I, there was some kind of obligatory um there was, there was something of an obligation uh, over being friends with random people and i always felt even as a child that that's not how it goes i'm a highly disagreeable person um in a in big five so i have like few friends that i would die for uh hopefully mutually but i can't just if you force me to be friends with somebody probably that's not going to work out so for me that was always a struggle in school and i think one of the reasons why i turned to reading so much because i was like okay at least with books i can choose like who i spend my time with and i read a lot and i read a very precociously um and then I eventually found my own friends where we really wanted to be friends. Um, and then the same way, you know, I looked at people and I looked at neighbors who are friends. I looked at coworkers who are friends. And to me, there was always some kind of layer of fakeness to it. Like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. If you, if you come together to found a company with your, with people that you want to be with, I do. And I think that there's a reason why those relationships are so strong and so passionate and, you know, break, breakups in those relationships are incredibly painful. So when I look at the, the, the future of, um, of human relationships and future of human, of, of communities, I agree. It's not, um, geography is not going to be a, a that, that much of a, of an impediment as it used to be either because some of it is going to be remote or part-time or because people actually move around, right? You have a lot of mobility. Um, what I see is the intentionality. And it's more important than interest. Like, I do want to be friends with a wildlife photographer, even though I know very little about wildlife and photography and probably we have a completely different lifestyle. But we want to be friends. There is an intention. We chose each other. And to me, that is freedom. To me, waking people up to the fact that 
You can choose who to spend your life with. You can choose who to be friends with. Um, to me, that there is something, you know, to me that gives hope about the future. And I think that's going to affect um, our internet usage, that's going to affect how we work and where we work, how we marry, how we, um, you know, uh, live as citizens, political agents in the world. And yeah, maybe, maybe kind of subconsciously, that's also what informed my, my starting Finchon. That I think you should have a say in what public intellectuals can speak to you. It should come from the people in the sense and the fact that you have the, the people's voice manifest in subcultural celebrities because nobody is forcing you to listen to a podcast or to read a blog. That's your decision to spend your time with that person or to reach out to them, to talk on Twitter or to comment on their blog. But you don't really have a say on, I don't know who goes on one of the major talk shows in the US or who testifies in front of Congress. That's chosen for you by people that you didn't necessarily vote for. Uh, and that did not used to be the case. It used to be the case that if a lot of people want to hear uh, a subcultural intellectual speak at a US campus, then that person was going to be invited to talk to the mainstream media, to get a, um, you know, um, um, a, a job at um, a media outlet or at an academic institution that many people can hear what they have to say. And then you could feel that this person probably reached this level in their career because a lot of people wanted to hear them. Mm. So I think reinstating that kind of democratic progress of good competition between ideas is, is, is going to be one of the aspects of getting back our choice. Mm. Very cool. Uh, so just to wrap up, how can people find out more about Pynchon? Pynchon has a website uh, called thepynchon.com. It's the because I haven't yet had the money to buy um, the other domain. Um, and the inter interact doesn't, it has a website, but it's not live yet. Uh, but you can find it on um, Twitter. Uh, it's at whatthei, cool. which is a, a, a constant question, I guess. So I thought it would be fun if that was the, the handle on Twitter. And I'm yeah. at the Anagat. Um, and that was not due to uh, financial reasons. It was because uh, Anagat was taken. I don't know by whom, because there are only two other Anagats in the world. Oh, wow. And it's, it's not them, so I don't know. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Take care. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Anna. As always, I will be releasing episodes Monday through Friday, and I'm starting to release episodes in Spanish as well. Uh, if you want to find those episodes in Spanish, go ahead and find get find Crazy Wisdom ESP on Twitter at Crazy Wisdom ESP. ESP is for Espanol. So if you speak Spanish or if you are learning Spanish, uh, please follow me at Crazy Wisdom ESP. Hope you guys have a great day. Uh, enjoy the ride. <laughs>